0: Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, Mahan Health with Dr. Hanisha. Mahan literally translates to great in Sanskrit, and it just doesn't make sense to have anything but the best when it comes to your health. My goal is by you listening or watching this podcast, you're getting just a little bit closer to achieving Mahan or great health yourself. This podcast is all for you, so please make sure to comment what you'd like to learn more about so I can get a guest on the show who's an expert in that field or hey, I might even talk about it myself. Today's episode is one where we're continuing to talk about one of my absolute favorite topics, hormones. Specifically today, we're talking about sleep and how it's associated with fertility. If you missed the last episodes on male and female hormones, make sure you go check it out. I interviewed Dr. Noilani Rodriguez, a women's health expert, and Dr. Michael Moeller, a men's health expert, and we had the most amazing conversations And this is such crucial information for all of us to know, both men and women, so make sure you check that episode out if you already haven't. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview one of my good friends and an esteemed colleague, Dr. Kalia Waddles. Dr. Kalia Waddles is a naturopathic physician specializing in women's health, fertility, and functional medicine. She earned an undergraduate degree in nutrition and a doctorate of naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, followed by additional education from the Institute for Functional Medicine. She also has advanced training in craniosacral therapy and breastfeeding medicine. Dr. Waddles is a firm believer that women deserve to have it all, family, career, and abundant good health. She holds dear the philosophy that knowledge of their fertility status empowers women to make informed decisions about growing babies, businesses, dreams, or whatever it is that they're hoping to bring into this world. Dr. Waddle serves as a clinical coordinator at the Institute for Functional Medicine, where she develops curriculum for advanced training in male and female hormones, thyroid and adrenal function, and gut health. She is currently building her new medical practice, Functional Fertility, offering fertility-focused telemedicine. In her spare time, she enjoys exploring the Pacific Northwest with her husband and two beautiful daughters. That's So That's a little bit of information about Dr. Kalia Waddles. She's absolutely phenomenal. I think you'll love this interview. Um, But before I move on, I just want to remind you all to make sure to leave comments uh, below on what you thought of this episode and reach out to Dr. Waddles after the show. She's phenomenal, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. All right. I won't hold you up anymore. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Dr. Waddles. How are you doing today?
1: Hi there. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here with you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you
0: so much for uh, coming on to the show. Really appreciate it.
1: Okay. It's my honor to support other NDs and network and it's lovely.
0: Oh, I love it. Uh, so, uh, I already gave a little bit of an intro of of your background, so now we're just going to get straight into it. And one of the first questions I ask all of my guests is what is your journey what was your story on how you how you came about naturopathic medicine because i think our story is a lot of who we are and i i feel like i love listening to other people's stories and so i hope our listeners do too and so tell me what what was your journey
1: so i think that actually fate was steering me towards this profession when i was 19 i moved away from home and actually moved right down the street from the Bastier University Seattle campus. So every day for a couple of years, I drove by the Bastier University sign and was like, what is this place about? And then I ended up working in um, a med spa in downtown Seattle and that was kind of my entry point into the natural health field. And I ended up meeting a yoga teacher that transformed my life and getting really into nutrition and then kind of by chance, I met a nutritionist and she said, oh yeah, I'm a Bastier grad. And I was like, wait, Bastier, I drive by this place every day. And she was like, oh yeah, you should definitely look into it. And so I ended up um, investigating the Bachelor of Science in Nutrition at Bastier and enrolled in the program and absolutely loved it. And as you know, the Bastier community, it's naturopathic doctors, acupuncturists, clinical health psychology, exercise physiology. So... I go to Bastyr and my eyes are just open to this whole world of the natural health sciences that I didn't know about. And as graduation was approaching from the nutrition program, I was thinking, I love nutrition with my whole heart, but I want to do more. I want to learn about lab testing and procedures. And I loved listening and overhearing what the naturopathic students were studying. And so I kind of went out on a limb and just had the, a feeling that that was the right thing and I had actually seen a, a naturopathic doctor as my primary care doctor since I was a teenager and so it, I, I was familiar with that model of care and it just felt right and went for it and it was definitely the right choice and I would say that the med school training was an absolutely transformational experience and I had two children during the program so it was transformational in a lot of different ways. and. I'm just so grateful to be part of this profession that I really think is the future of medicine.
0: Yes, I love it. I, I know if I, I did one rotation with you and I remember just being like, this woman is just such a badass. Like <laughs> She has these babies and she's just always grinding. And I was, always had so much respect for you and you always inspired me. So
1: I appreciate you. Oh. That is so kind of you to say. I actually get messages from ND students that I don't know through groups kind of get connected to the Bastier Mama Club and they send me messages like I want to get into the program but I want to have children and I always tell people I do not recommend <laughs> actually doing what I did. It, it is, the struggle is real but it worked for our family but it's, it's not for the faint of heart that's for sure.
0: Definitely not. Definitely not. Well, you're amazing. for doing it. For sure. thank you. Thank you <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for sharing your journey and moving right along to the question. So we wanted to talk about sleep and fertility, right? Mm-hmm. So how
1: exactly can sleep affect conception? Yeah. So I definitely believe that sleep has a role to play in conception. And I think that the clearest way that that happens is by affecting ovulation. So we kind of already know that a lack of sleep affects our reproductive hormones. And the best example that I have is luteinizing hormone. And so just a review for your audience is luteinizing hormone is the signal that comes from the brain to the ovary that tells the ovary to release a mature egg every month. And that's ovulation, right? And that's how we get pregnant. That egg is released it's fertilized, and that results in a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating is that luteinizing hormone follows a circadian rhythm. So circadian rhythm being our body's patterns in relation to light and dark signals. And so LH kind of follows this pattern, and where I think it's really interesting is when you look at rat studies, that luteinizing hormone also follows a pattern in rats, and female rats always ovulate in the afternoon. And This makes perfect sense. It's right before their most active time of the day. So that's when they're most likely to get pregnant, right? I think that is so interesting. That is very interesting. I, I could read rat studies. It's like, oh, they're not human studies, but they can do so many things. And so it's really interesting to read. And the data in humans is a little bit more limited. But what we do know is that most women tend to ovulate in the morning which also makes sense, right? You're awake, you have all this time in the day and into the night to get pregnant, which makes sense from a continuing the species point of view.
0: And we usually have higher energy levels in the morning because we release more cortisol. So the whole state of events, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It makes
1: perfect sense. And so it's a little more difficult to study the luteinizing hormone patterns in humans because it you know, requires serial blood draws and things like that. But I think a really clear real-life example that we can look at is when women travel over multiple time zones. And something that is documented and that I see all the time is that when women travel over a few time zones, their period will be late and they'll be anxious like, am I pregnant? But really, they probably didn't ovulate that month. And I think it makes sense if we think about your relationship with light and darkness and how that influences your release of luteinizing hormone. If you're switching up that stimuli and you're not sleeping, then your luteinizing hormone isn't signaling the ovary to release an egg. You're not ovulating. Your period is delayed. So I always warn my cycle trackers who are you know, tracking their cycle to either prevent pregnancy or to get pregnant. Like if you're going to travel... You need to be aware that this might shift, and so maybe you need to plan for that, plan for trying to get pregnant a different month, or using a second form of contraception, if that's our goal. Um, So that's a really clear, real-world example of how changing your sleep patterns, or at least your relationship to light and darkness, can affect your ovulation and therefore conception.
0: Wow. Yeah. That is really fascinating. I, I actually didn't know a lot of that. So I love, I love, this is what I love about this. I get to learn so much <laughs> and it's really uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So that was a lot of what, what women are going through. Do you know much about like how it affects fertility for men? Because I always say, so I feel like a lot of times in our culture, we forget that it takes two to make a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so we focus a lot on female fertility, but not on male fertility. And that is about half the issue. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So what do you know about sleep affecting male fertility?
1: I love that you're bringing this up. I'm so guilty of this in my my future practice, which is called functional fertility. I, I ignore men more often than I should. And I feel bad about that, but you're absolutely right. It takes two to tango and sleep can absolutely affect fertility in men. And I think maybe even the mechanism with how sleep affects male fertility is maybe even a little bit more clear in that we know that men need testosterone for both their libido, so sexual function, and their sperm production. And the majority of daily testosterone release actually happens during sleep, which I don't even remember learning in school. I learned that later that sleep is the main time where testosterone is produced. And it's really interesting that men actually need a full three hours of uninterrupted, totally normal sleep in order to reach their full potential of testosterone production. So I think about like my husband, when we had little children, no one's sleeping three hours at a time. And I'm sure that there's tons of men that have that experience. And so that's just something that I like to think about of if your sleep is really fragmented, that that could potentially be a cause for low testosterone. Mm -hmm. So that that's a, a fun fact, I think. And there's these funny studies where they actually take college aged men And the researchers test their testosterone, then they deprive them of sleep for a period of time, and then they measure their testosterone again. And by sleep deprivation, I mean it's like four and a half to five hours rather than eight or nine hours. But once they measure their testosterone after they've been sleep deprived for maybe up to a week, it sometimes is 10 or 15% lower, which is pretty drastic if we're thinking about Total testosterone—that's a—that's a big deal. And when I read that statistic, I did a little digging and found that maybe up to fifteen percent of men in the United States, at least, are sleeping five hours or less per night. So that's a huge population that could be having low testosterone because they're not sleeping enough.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I—I I feel like even in my practice, I have so many. Um, both male and female clients and patients who struggle with sleep and um, either they're waking up in the night or they can't fall asleep so what would you say like could be some some sorts of things like maybe things like sleep hygiene or in general like what what can people do to help with their sleep because I do also feel like a lot of times we we talk about the problems that occur because of sleep deprivation or insomnia but then mm-hmm. a lot of causes more stress for people who have insomnia and then they definitely can't sleep because now they're more anxious. And so I always try to like give solutions like what what can we do?
1: Yeah. Well it's really interesting while we're on the topic of the male fertility is we know that testosterone in and of itself actually improves sleep quality in men. And so that's one area where we get in this vicious cycle where men aren't sleeping, so their testosterone is low. And then their low testosterone leads to poor sleep quality. And so, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. And then what we see in the literature is that replacing testosterone actually can reverse that process. It improves sleep quality and then the man can, you know, get more regular sleep and then maybe his testosterone production increases. So, you know, in naturopathic medicine, we have our therapeutic order and prescribing hormones is fairly high up. And so I definitely have um, many lifestyle things that we can do, but I think testosterone replacement isn't out of the question when you need it, right? So I felt really relevant in that moment when when we're talking about male fertility. But in general, I love that you brought up sleep hygiene because that's the starting place with everyone, right? right? Sleep hygiene is where it's at and we all should be practicing Sleep hygiene and the way that I describe that to people is setting the environment for healthy sleep and encouraging what I've been listening to all of these sleep medicine experts and they always refer to sleep drive and that's you know your desire to sleep and your ability to fall asleep and so we have to set the scene for our sleep drive and for what I tell people is that means we avoid eating two to three hours before bed. And then we ensure that the last thing that we're eating in the day is mixed protein and fat. Because I honestly think that a lot of people, you know, they eat dinner at five and then they have a bowl of ice cream at seven, and then their blood sugar is like a crazy roller coaster through the night, and they're waking up because their body's hungry.
0: Mm-hmm. That was literally how I grew up.
1: <laughs> like, exactly. Me too. I think many of us do. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Either ice cream or milk and cereal like 7 8 p.m. before we went to sleep (laughs) totally
1: bedtime snack like that's definitely a thing Mm -hmm. and so we have to kind of avoid that blood sugar roller coaster so that we can stay asleep and then the next area which I am I really struggle with this one is avoiding screen time at night that's probably we I mean we're all looking at our screen Late into the night, whether it's the TV or I'm reading on an iPad or looking at my phone. Mm-hmm. So that's a big problem. And I tell people, even if you can discontinue the screens 30 minutes before you go to bed, an hour is probably better. But even 30 minutes is going to make a huge difference. And then because I and many others do the strategy, if I work on my computer late at night when my kids are asleep, I wear my blue light blocking glasses and you know, it's not perfect, but I think it's helpful. And I always remind people, which most people know about this, but you know, put the setting on your iPhone that makes the light more amber rather than blue, wear your blue light blocking glasses, like do what we can to filter that, that light that's so stimulating to our brain.
0: There's also apps that you can get on your computer as well, or some of the newer computers already have it built in just like the newer phones do. Um, and so there's one app that I used to use on my old computer that was called Flux. I don't know if you've heard of it. Flux, no. Yeah, it's just F-L-U-X and you, it just takes away all the blue light. And I honestly would keep it Mm -hmm. on all throughout med school, like all day because we'd be on the computer all day and I would just get migraines from, (laughs) from studying so
1: much. And so, um, now, now I just use it regularly. Yeah, that's a great tool. I mean, we're in the age of lighting pollution, right? Like these artificial lights are everywhere and it's so stimulating to our brain. And so I love the idea of those blockers. Right, right. But still
0: turning off the electronics, turning off your phone, putting your phone on airplane mode, like you said, 30 minutes before uh, would be ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, if you could read a book, like a, Hold on to a hands on book, you know, a good old fashioned
1: book, not a Kindle or an iPad or whatever. Yeah. Or journaling. I think there's a mindfulness aspect of that too, right? That sets the stage for a calm sleep. And right. we know that anxiety and stress contribute to sleep loss. And so if we can kind of make a ritual where we disconnect from our electronics, we have these mindfulness practices that set the stage for a calm sleep pattern. I think that's a win win.
0: Right exactly exactly and one of the things i like to do personally as well and what i recommend to a lot of my clients and patients is if they if that anxiety is a factor it's just like journaling writing down those anxious thoughts getting them out of your mind and onto paper you know just getting it out absolutely <laughs> again setting oh yourself yeah up.
1: i think that's especially important for folks like me that are ruminators where if i don't get it out i'm just going to sit there and have my brain turning and turning and no one can sleep when you're thinking like that
0: no no it's almost impossible yeah i actually Mm -hmm. have uh personally i would wake up in the middle of the night a lot that was kind of my sleep issues and for me it was honestly as simple as putting my phone on airplane mode and then as soon as i started doing that i just always slept through the night I mean, it's not always that simple, unfortunately, <laughs> but, yeah. but it's definitely, it definitely plays a factor. Now, anytime I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, what is going on? And you know, you get angry when you don't get enough sleep. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> You're just like frustrated. And then I look Bye. over at my phone and I'm like, I forgot to put it on airplane mode. <laughs> and it's like every yeah. time.
1: I, yep. I put mine on airplane mode too, electronics off and then that. Yeah brings up another great point of I always tell people, you have to sleep in the absolute darkest room possible. Like if you put your hand in front of your face, you can't see it type of dark. That's the kind of darkness, darkness that we want. And you know, we, if, when we talk about regular sleep being this dynamic relationship between cortisol and melatonin and cortisol being stimulated by light hitting our eyes and melatonin, which, you know, keeps us asleep and increases our sleep drive being stimulated by darkness. Like we have to have that room as absolutely dark as possible to give our melatonin the best chance of being released. And I think, you know, people, especially I have a four-year-old and she likes to fall asleep with a night light on. And so I let her fall asleep and then I creep in there and turn it off because I want her to have the darkest room possible that's great so
0: um, in terms of that like I know a lot of people always ask me questions about like actually supplementing with melatonin or uh, something like CBD oil or something what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah so I actually am a fan of melatonin in this particular population especially and really low doses. Like I've seen some sleep experts that I've listened to, they even start at half of a milligram, which is so small, right? Like that's such a tiny dose. But I think melatonin, why I like it in this population is because melatonin is actually a really powerful antioxidant, as well as you know, helps with our sleep. And melatonin is present in fairly high concentrations in the ovarian fluid, so the fluid that's surrounding our eggs and it's really helping to protect our eggs against oxidative stress, so basically damage to the DNA. And we see that when women have lower levels of melatonin in their ovarian fluid, that they have worse egg quality. And so I think melatonin, you know, we're using melatonin in women who are undergoing IVF to improve their egg quality and to support really healthy eggs. And so if someone needs it for sleep, it kind of makes sense that we would use at least a low dose of melatonin to both help with their sleep and to promote their egg quality.
0: it. Re- yeah, I, I didn't know all of that. Like I knew that it was an antioxidant, but that's really cool to know how much it's really affecting the ovarian fluid itself. Um, that's really cool to know and, and very helpful for women who are trying to get pregnant. This is a huge
1: part of it. Yeah think. So many women struggle Mm -hmm. with that. I've seen really promising studies showing that melatonin supplementation is improving egg quality and embryo quality. So in women that are doing IBF and they're creating embryos and the embryos that have been created after melatonin supplementation have a a better growth rate. So they're they're making it into the growth phase where they need to be transferred. And so it's really promising and I I keep my eye on it. And um, it's definitely something that I'm a fan of as well as i think my probably my other favorite supplement for sleep is phosphatidylcholine especially okay. in patients that you know have like a an afternoon or evening cortisol surge and so maybe they kind of flatline with their cortisol in that in the early afternoon and then they have a, a surge again so those dysfunctional cortisol patterns we're likely diagnosing that with salivary cortisol, right? But we can kind of tell even without salivary cortisol testing, who's having that spike. And I think phosphatidylserine can be really helpful in that situation or in someone who's, you know, having their uh, a cortisol awakening response type behavior where their cortisol is spiking, but maybe at like 3.30 in the morning when they don't want to be waking up at that point, I, I think phosphatidylserine can be really useful in that situation, too. Okay. And and
0: you were saying phosphatidylserine and not phosphatidylcholine or both?
1: Phosphatidylserine.
0: Serine. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And could you actually uh, go into a little bit of like the dreams that come out of sometimes that we hear from melatonin or phosphatidylserine? Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Do you just go into that a little bit so people are aware if they do end up supplementing that what what could happen?
1: Yes, so especially with melatonin, we always warn people you may have some interesting dreams and Usually I don't see this happen at really low doses It's usually at a little bit higher doses, but it could potentially happen to anyone And I think this is really important, especially in patients that have a trauma history because it can really stir things up. And, and we need to be really mindful about interventions we're using that's going to kind of stimulate that mental, emotional side of things when someone has a trauma history. And so I, I don't particularly love melatonin, especially in that situation. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That's That is very important. And I feel like a lot of people that, you know, maybe buy melatonin, type supplements off the counter, over the counter, and they don't realize that that is a consideration, it can be really scary. It, it definitely can be. And so, so, yeah, that's why I
0: think it's good information for people to know uh, before they um, buy. And again, I, I emphasize this all the time, but making sure you're getting high quality supplements and ideally working with a practitioner so that we can figure out, like you said, like, melatonin may not be right for someone who's experienced trauma, but someone who experienced trauma may not know and just go get that melatonin over the counter, right? And so it's not necessarily right for everyone. And so just working with someone who knows what would be right for you is ideal.
1: Yeah, that personalized aspect that we try to use in every area, it's really crucial there. Exactly. All right. Well, do you have anything else that you wanted to add
0: on when it comes to this topic before we move on to the rapid fire questions?
1: Well, I think um, since I, I talked more in depth about male fertility, I could maybe just talk a little bit more in depth about female fertility and sleep in general, if that's Perfect. okay. Yes. I'd love to hear it. So we we kind of already talked about the way that Melatonin is related to female fertility. So that's one aspect, but there's a couple other, um, maybe a little bit more subtle ways that sleep can affect female fertility. And one thing that I think about, in terms of fertility and just chronic conditions in general, is that sleep loss can increase inflammation, right? And so I think about things that are inflammatory in, in nature, like PCOS, and endometriosis that are inherently contributing to subfertility, and how mm-hmm. the, the sleep-driven inflammation can worsen those right. those conditions. Like
0: all the autoimmune conditions, like thyroid diseases, like hypo or even hyper, you know, all of that, a lot of
1: inflammation. Exactly, and that's that's perfect timing that you brought up the immune connection because lack of sleep we think about how that could potentially contribute to immune mediated infertility because under conditions of sleep loss, there's elevated markers for, you know, both inflammation and immune dysregulation. And many women that have infertility have elevations in those same markers. So I'll be honest, the research here is pretty limited, but I think anytime we're treating someone who's having immune-related infertility, we should absolutely be looking at her sleep as a foundation of health, right? It's not going to hurt. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, like you said, it's a foundation of health. That's
0: you know, we, we can't really live without sleeping. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So it makes a huge difference.
1: And- in addition to those processes, I always think about sleep and its relationship to insulin resistance, which is problematic in a few ways. We already talked about the connection with the inflammation and PCOS, which is also characterized by insulin resistance, right? And then we're making the insulin resistance worse by not sleeping. And then that elevated insulin increasing inflammation, which is connected to all of those patterns that we already talked about. And then, you know, I think about when we have inflammation and insulin resistance how that's upregulating enzymes in the ovary that are making the androgens so male hormones like testosterone and that's interrupting ovulation so there's so many pathways where sleep is both directly and indirectly affecting someone's fertility potential and ability to get pregnant and i know we've said this a thousand times before but sleep loss is such a a critical detriment to someone's quality of life. And aside from how it affects maybe all of their medical conditions, sleep loss is just stressful and it makes you irritable and tired. And like you talk about, you're waking up in the night and you're so mad that you're not sleeping. And I think about how, you know, anger and frustration, how's that contributing to your relationship with your partner and your libido and your sex drive. And so that's kind of an indirect way that this is affecting fertility because you're grumpy and not in the mood. Right. Yeah. I mean, it,
0: it's all connected, Like, right, with with the sleep. Like you said before, it's, it ends up being a vicious cycle. You're not getting enough sleep. You're going to have more stress. When you're having more stress, you can't sleep. And so it's just like working on all aspects of your health, especially the foundations right? The foundations, being able to find some healthy stress relievers, working on your sleep in a healthy way. Um, I feel like a lot of people use alcohol to sleep.
1: Yeah. And
0: that, as we know, really just, it, you don't get into that strong stage four REM cycle of your sleep whenever you have alcohol. That's why your sleep is so light. Usually you wake up I mean, I know I personally, if I have uh, have a glass of wine, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night, <laughs> yeah. no matter what. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So just having yeah. healthy sleep.
1: Yeah. yeah, like you said, it's all connected, and you know, in terms of hormones, it's 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 funny how all of we can make all of these connections, and when we look at hormones specifically, how you know, there's kind of this bi-directional communication where. We need to be sleeping adequately to make our hormones, but then our hormones can also help our sleep quality. We already talked about testosterone for men, but I also think about progesterone a lot, you know, and how progesterone, especially in postmenopausal women, is so important for sleep quality, but also in pre and perimenopausal women, progesterone and estrogen have both been shown to improve sleep quality. So it's like we have to be sleeping or else we throw off this whole cycle and it's really important. I, I certainly take it for granted and I'm sure many people do.
0: Definitely. And, and bringing up the progesterone, there's so many women who deal with progesterone deficiency now. And like you said, that's a cycle. And so maybe if you're unable to sleep and you're doing everything else right, maybe maybe there's a deficiency of progesterone. Um, it doesn't really help. I mean, it doesn't really hurt to get your hormones checked. I, I personally like to get them checked regularly just to see where I'm at and mm-hmm. um, yes but like you said that it makes it's a cycle <laughs> we got to work on all aspects of our health not just one
1: yep absolutely we're on the same page thanks for letting me get that get those last <laughs> little thoughts in there yes.
0: yes no i appreciate it thank you so much for sharing okay so we're going to go into the rapid fire questions mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. first question is what does mahan health mean to you
1: Yeah. So I thought about this and I honestly think for me, it means freedom. So just the freedom to, and that's going to look differently for everyone, right? But for me, it means the freedom to have the energy to play with my kids and enjoy my life, but then have the brain power to do everything that I want to do for my personal health and personal development and personal happiness. So it's just the freedom to be able to do whatever it is you want to do to fulfill your mission on this earth and good health is so important and able to you know so that you can do those things and it's something that I never want to take for granted because even on days when I'm not you know I'm not sick nothing's really wrong with me but I'm just not feeling up to par it makes a huge difference and in order to achieve our goals like we have to have good health it's everything
0: exactly I love it I love that Mahan health is freedom I really like that all right, so the next two questions are kind of related. So, what was the most difficult health change for you to make, and then what are you still working on?
1: Yeah, so I actually think that this maybe is the same question for me because it's I'm a work in progress about this one, but I just have been such a worry wart, a constant worrier my whole life. And when I was trying to get pregnant with my first daughter, I was reading all this research about you know, stress and how that affects your hormones, all of these things that we've been talking about today. And I realized, like wow, that was a big wake up call. I really need to get my act together if I wanna have you know, optimal fertility and great hormones. And so I started implementing all of these, these practices. And I think maybe the most life-changing one for me was a gratitude journal. You talked about journaling earlier and I think it's such a, an underrated modality And I read once um, a quote in the, I can't remember the author, but they said, a gratitude practice is a vaccine against anxiety. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. (laughs) And so I started, you know, keeping this gratitude journal and listening to guided meditation. And for me, I need to do guided meditation because if I just sit there in the silence, like that kind of makes me anxious. And so the guided imagery and the guided meditation that kind of, you know, I have a voice to focus on and it walks me through like that really works for me. So I started pulling in all of these tools and it really makes such a a drastic difference in your life quality when you can just give your mind a break for a minute. And so I'm not perfect and it's something I continue to work on forever, Um, but I continue to learn about what tools work best for me and keep experimenting and trying things. And so probably will be a lifelong worrier, but at least it's progress.
0: <laughs> definitely, definitely. And that's what I always say. Perfection is never the expectation. It's in—it's about progress. That's, that's all we're doing is just trying to get better each day, um, whether it's in our health or in our mental health or personal lives or whatever it is. Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> okay
0: so then my last question is I always like to think of you know if I had all the money in the world I would be putting out a lot of commercials on healthy living and so if you were able to put one commercial out there what would it be about and why
1: <laughs> okay so this might come up as a bit of a surprise, being a naturopathic doctor and, you know, we try to use the path that's, you know, least invasive, but my commercial is going to be about something that's pretty invasive, but I'm such a, a proponent of, and it's egg freezing. Like, I want to get the word out about egg freezing. And mm-hmm. I think about this all the time. And so just hear me out that, you know, in in our society, which I totally am on board with, women are career driven. We are, you know, wanting to achieve all of these goals and we have all of these things to do. And I think we do women a disservice in this society by not talking more about the age related decline of fertility. It just is something that happens. Our egg quality is affected as we age. And even if we have a great lifestyle, it happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be very clear with women that, you know, this is a, a physiological Process, but you have options where you can take a snapshot of your fertility in this moment and you could preserve it, which I think is, I mean, what a time to be alive, right? That we even have the ability to do that. And we have, you know, the ability to look at anti malarian hormone, which is kind of a marker of ovarian reserve. And we could do that when someone's 27 and they're saying, you know, I want to focus on my career and i'm not ready for children and i probably won't be for a long time and then we could say fine we could look at ovarian reserve we could talk about the potential for egg freezing so that when you're ready when you're 37 there's 28 year old eggs waiting for you and then we don't have to worry about now i can't get pregnant when i was um a student and i was going through all these rotations with reproductive endocrinologists I heard from women in you know, their early 40s so often saying, if I only would have known, if someone would have told me, I would have done something. Mm-hmm. So that's my commercial. I'm getting the word out. Egg freezing is a thing. It's an option. It's becoming widely available. So we need to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I do think it's something that we need to talk, definitely talk more about for sure. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. That's, that's all we got. Uh, where can people find you if they want to? I mean, you have a great Instagram page <laughs> and
1: a website. So like,
0: where can people find you if uh, they're looking for you?
1: Yep. So you can find me on Instagram at functionalfertility. I'm also on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Dr. Kalia Waddles. And then my website that's currently under construction, but it's going to relaunch anytime is functionalfertilitydoc.com.
0: Love it. I love that name too. I love how you got the Functional Fertility name. So fun. It's great. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Waddles. And I hope to see you
1: again on the show. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. It was great to talk to you. You too. Bye. 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 Well, I hope
0: you all enjoyed that episode. I will have Dr. Waddle's information in the show notes below, so make sure to check that out. I do think it's important to note that our fertility is a great determination of health, and if we are struggling with infertility, there is a deeper issue at hand. That means we are not experiencing great or Mahan health, and we have to address that. All right, that's all I got for you all today. Wishing you all Mahan or great health, and I'll see you next time.